Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Lauren Balfe, a British film composer whose credits include The Dark Knight, Bad Boys for Life, and the upcoming Marvel film Black Widow. Lauren called into the show while on a walk in London, and in our conversation we discussed a number of topics. Among them, an introduction to his score for HBO's His Dark Materials, which is currently eligible for this year's Emmy Awards, Lauren's technical approach to film scoring, and his creative collaboration with Hans Zimmer, an in-depth breakdown of his music for one of my favorite movies, Mission Impossible Fallout, with Lorne getting ready to score Mission Impossible 7 and 8, which are scheduled to begin shooting in September 2020, and much more. If you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Okay, Lauren, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart for joining us on the show. I'm very excited. I wanted to dive in and talk about his dark materials because the score is in competition. I wanted to begin by asking you a little bit about the process writing the theme. About a year, this is say, quote, writing a piece of music that's 60 seconds that's meant to represent the whole show is not only a skill, but also very hard. You chip away at the stone and hope you've created something that to the audience will instantly represent the emotion of these books. I wanted to make sure that each character not only had its own theme, but was represented by his own instrument." Close quote. I mean, I think you haven't shied away from expressing your love for experimenting and describe the score for this show, not only as anachronistic, but more specifically like Alger meets Nine Inch Nails. So how did the process change from writing the theme you thought you were gonna compose to the one you actually ended up with? Well, firstly, I, I, can, I can't get over how I excelled in that quote. It is just so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed with how articulate I was. I wish that there is a formula for these things. If there was, everybody would be doing it. So it wouldn't be good for me. But I think the problem is, is that the Dark Materials theme was not the original idea. What we end up listening to wasn't the original idea. Weirdly enough, I knew that that theme was going to be the, the hardest task. So I left it to the end. So I was already writing the show and I think I was I was more than halfway through the show and um, the, the pressure of being asked to present this theme was slowly weighing on my shoulders and I couldn't figure out in my head I thought okay it's got to relate thematically to what I have done in the show so they the melodies were the DNA were connecting to all of our characters somehow in the original theme that I had written and then I, I knew that I wanted, to, I wanted to present to everybody a couple of options. I'm an options guy uh, when it comes to music, which some people think doesn't show commitment. But I just think that there is always two ways to look at something. I, I had two ideas. And then all of a sudden, I, I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting just to start from scratch and write a piece of music that didn't necessarily have any DNA connected to the rest of the show? Because I could come, I could come back and fix that. I could go back 
and put this theme into the, the show and use it as a, a musical narrative. So the third idea, which ended up being what we've got at the moment, was just something which I, I thought about that was the biggest story. And I think I was going down a rabbit hole, which was wrong with trying to look at character-based. That was where I was hitting a wall. And when it comes to TV, you need something that grabs your attention immediately, draws you in if you're in another room. You never plan to try to kind of write a cat. It's a difficult task. You don't sit down and say, right, I'm going to write a catchy tune. I think it's like sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a number one hit. I don't think you, can, you do that because as soon as you do, it doesn't work. But I wanted to try to get something that was DNA-wise not connected to any of the characters. And it was a gamble. It didn't connect to anything that I had written so far. But I presented it. And there two other options. And that was the one that excited everybody, thankfully. That meant then going back into all the prior episodes and slowly threading this theme in it. Our theme was now telling us what the bigger picture of of Lyra's journey is, and of, of, of the books. There doesn't need to be a plan when it comes to composing. That's what makes it enjoyable and exciting, is that a new discovery can educate you to the rest of your school. Writing music is one thing, but I quickly wanted to ask you about your process recording the score and in general casting your players. About it, you had this to say. And by the way, there's going to be many sophisticated quotes, so I hope you're ready, Lauren. Yes! <laughs> Quote, when creating music for a film, you have the same task as a casting agent has. For everybody's theme, I wanted to get musicians that would bring their attitude into the music. As soon as I knew who the musicians were going to be, I embraced their playing abilities and I started writing for them, close quote. So again, we're talking about recruiting major talents like Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Celestina Guo, Richard Harvey, the list goes on. So I was wondering, much like a director judges the best take of a scene, how do you choose the best take from all these music performances? And how do you work with your conductor, Matt Dunkley, to extract the best performance out of an orchestra? It's a very difficult process. These musicians still always amaze me. They have never seen or heard this music until the day that they're booked. And they play it immediately, without any mistakes, and all of a sudden bring these characters alive, which is just truly breathtaking to be able to sight read. So I think, I think an orchestra, in one respect, is easier to record than solo individuals because there's more different ways to have that performance and different interpretations to it. With Chad, for example, Chad, in my opinion, is one of the, if not the best drummer in the world. He's musical. I know that's a weird thing to say about drummers, but sometimes drummers have different roles. And the way he performs, to me, just complements the melodies and the actual songs that he works to. So he brings a lot of ideas to the table. And the main thing with Coulter, especially, I knew when writing it, I was thinking of him because her theme was rhythm-based and a march. And I, I knew from day one, even before I asked him, I was thinking of writing that music for him. So I think that that two-minute piece of music will still take five, six hours to record because you have to allow the musicians to experiment, bring to the table their ideas, and with an orchestra, it's slightly different because there's so many of them, it can turn into an anarchy 
if everybody's got um, a different idea. So with an orchestra, you have to be a tiny bit more disciplined to following what is on the page. But different orchestras around the world play differently. They bring a different attitude to that music. And I think with Matt, his background, actually he's a composer also, as well as a conductor. So he understands what we're trying to do as in the composer. And also he understands film music. And I think to me, I wanted to make this show as grand, but also as, as intimate as possible. And we've worked together on many films and he understands this kind of the sound that I was trying to go for. And I wanted to make, I wanted to bring it to a, a different level that you don't normally hear on TV. And, that, and that's part of him actually bringing what his experience to the actual performances. And that brings me to my last question in regards to the show, which is, again, the future and, and how the music may grow from here. Quote, the theme and the essence have to stay the same, but the arrangement will have to change. As the story evolves, the characters will become different people. The tone will perhaps become different as well. Close quote. So if I'm not mistaken, you may have already begun working on the new season. And I was wondering, how do you think your approach to scoring season one would have been different if you'd known what you do now that you're deep into season two? Well, the joy of being able to work on a TV show or a film where there's where the book exists is you already know the journey. So that, that helps greatly. From season one, we knew that I think at the beginning... Nobody was expecting to see Will. It was um, in the first couple of episodes, it was not necessarily known that he was going to appear. So I think you've got to look ahead. You've got to think of the, the longer journey. And it's the same as on a film. But it's just, it's 10 times harder on a TV show. Because with a film, you can sit there and look at the timeline. And you know that if it's two hours long, you know the emotional beats. Now with a TV show... If it's eight episodes long or 10 episodes long, it's very difficult to keep being aware emotionally and storytelling-wise where that beat is. So it's a much harder task. But thankfully, because I knew the books and I knew the timeline, I knew where we had to go. And now I'm on season two, I, I also know where to go. So it, it's a great advantage being able to know the actual narrative of the long-term storylines. Season two I've started on, and it's just, if not more, exciting than season one. And also being allowed to develop these characters' themes is very exciting. And the, the books were part of my, my background. It's like working on Bad Boys for me. It's the same feeling because it's something that was an important part of my growing up as a person. Projects like that are always important to have. And also, it's a rare one to have where you can actually write big themes. Some projects don't want themes because they don't work and they may distract from the narrative. So it was great to be able to, to literally have no rules with this show. We didn't have to be classical. We didn't have to be modern. It was a truly hybrid musical narrative. Before I dive into Mission, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your collaboration with Hans Zimmer because what fascinates me is the idea of a collaboration where you're, quote, in the back of the curtains working with him as early as 2005 for Batman Begins. About him, you have this to say, quote, 
I went to four different music conservatories, but was politely asked to leave each one. Hans gave me my training and always talks about the story and the characters rather than discussing the music, which is why perhaps his scores stand alone even without the visuals, close quote. You know, a moment ago you mentioned the fact that sometimes there is a resistance to melody and here's a guy who fully embraces that. So I don't know, I just quickly, I was wondering in what way you think your dialogue with, with Hans differs and if you could talk about the experience of being part of a larger writing group, you know, how that informs your guys' creativity. Okay, so first part, I don't think that there is a curtain. I've never been aware of the curtain. When working for Hans, when you're in that environment, you will sit up front and be part of the actual dialogue and be part of the team. When working with Chris Nolan, there was no back room happening and there never is. And I think that what's different, the majority of composers have a back room that they don't talk about and they they work as if it's a sole task and it's not what hans has done and created has been the ability for it to be open and i think it's obvious when you look at you know people get credited for writing music on his projects the majority of composers do not have that and i think it's interesting because i think now especially now more people kind of talk about this it sounds like the Wizard of Oz sometimes, but it's really not. The fact is, is that, you know, when people say, well, Hans doesn't write his music, it, it's, it's, you've got to look at the fact that every year since, I don't know, 30 years ago, for the last 30 years, Hans has contributed to film and written music that is still influential and still memorable. And it doesn't matter who's working for him. He's still generating music that is profound it's part of cinema as well as our listening experience you turn on a tv and commercials still have true romance temp tracks are still using inception he's one of the most influential filmmakers and i think that's the most important thing is that he sees himself as a filmmaker first and a composer second making a film is a team effort you can't say action on a set and simply just be by yourself there has to be that uh, collaborative factor and he has embraced it. He's also given a lot of us an amazing training and not necessarily music. I've always said that I can't remember any time when Hans and I sat down when I was working for him and we started discussing the harmonic structures of the cue. We talked about the emotion of the scene and he has a great ability to discover talent. You look at John Powell, Rupert Gregson Williams, there's a great pedigree there where we would all be not where we are if it wasn't for him. Every note in his schools originate from him. It doesn't matter if it's pirates where there's 10 additional composers. There's a reason for that, that structure. It's called picture turnover. And when you're working on movies, big movies, there are picture edits every day. And you need that collective around you to be able to survive. And he gives those people credit, which is deserved, and not hidden in the back. And I think that there's two perceptions of it. There's the fan base, which think a certain thing. But then those in the industry look at it totally different because they know that other big composers have got teams of writers that will never get any credit.
I wanted to devolve a healthy <laughs> chunk of our conversation to one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Mission Impossible Fallout. I, you may or may not know, I'm from Italy. And my heart was broken when you guys stepped away in February. I I was banging my head against the wall. So it was so it was all of ours. I was meant to be over there. It sounds like you guys may be coming back. So I think everybody's very excited. But uh, allow me to take things from the beginning and and talk about your process of exploration and the freedom of not having to write to picture. Quote. Before even getting the job, I started writing. I locked myself in a studio for two, three weeks to write freely and discover the untapped musical possibility for Fallout. Writing suites after my conversations with Chris, Chris being Chris McQuarrie, the director, Eddie Hamilton, who's the editor, and Chris began using the music and scenes. So in a way we created our own temp, close quote. So I, I love the idea of you writing for Chris, the equivalent of a musical letter to pitch him your emotional response to his ideas regarding Ethan's journey. And I was wondering, what do you think creating Sweets pre-filming offered you on a creative and emotional level that cutting to picture right away simply couldn't? No rules. Yeah. I think the whole point is that there's a big hatred for temp music, but you have to remove the melodies of what is contained in temp music and, and look at the structure and what it's trying to do because some editors like working to that and some don't. And I think that we were able with Chris, he was able to describe a scene or an emotion and ask for a piece of music that descri musically described what he was trying to portray emotionally. And I think that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think there was probably hours with of experimentation. But I think it gives you a great luxury to not feel the panic in knowing that you've got to write a six minute action cue by tomorrow. It takes away that stress and, and lets you focus on the task in hand, which is writing a piece of music. You're, you're writing it with a narrative in mind. And I think it was the same with Dark Materials, with the characters. I'd seen some of the footage but I'd seen footage of all of the characters because you don't normally film in order. And that's why my stepping stone was to write all the characters' themes and present it to everybody. And that's what the first album was. There's two albums for uh, Dark Materials and the first one is called The Anthology. The Anthology of Dark Materials. And, and that, was, that was my notebook. That's what I wrote in the beginning of the show so that we could all agree on this was a collective feeling of the musical tone. I, I try to, I do it with Michael Bay a lot on Six Underground. As soon as Michael started filming, I started writing. Actually, I started writing before he was filming. We would talk about ideas and scenes and it, it just makes it a more collaborative journey rather than the majority of times on films, you get brought in maybe two months before the end and it's a race, you have to get it done. You have to get it done. Unfortunately, it reduces the, the true artistic adventure that you should be able to have. But no, on mission seven and eight, the first conversation I had with Chris, I've already, I've already started working on ideas. Look, I've said it before, this, this film and, and the journey of Ethan Hunt has been part of my ethos in life. It is my filmography. I've loved all the movies and I've loved all the soundtracks. And now to be able to be part of that family is a dream come true. When you're given 
the ability to work with a, a such a, a famous theme that Lala has written. It, it's part of folklore. People use that piece of music well outside the film. And it still amazes me how there are still so many different ways that we could be using that one theme and the plot theme. I don't, I don't normally do it, but I, I do love watching Fallout. <laughs> Very rarely do you get movies that have got amazing action and great story, storytelling and heart. Yeah, it's very, it's very unique. And Chris is just an amazing storyteller. And, and it's just a privilege. Look, I keep learning from them. And I think that's the most important thing as a composer. I think the day you stop learning and discovering a new, oh, that's an interesting way, is the day you should quit. I think Chris and Tom and Eddie, it's amazing being around them as filmmakers because they push you as a composer to try harder. Let's talk about the theme for a second. About you, this to say, quote, I always remind myself of the audience's emotion of hearing the theme, this theme specifically. In the opening titles, the melody is actually in halftime, the bass line is in double time. In the closing, I realize it wasn't about being too clever. I just wanted to present it in an honest way. So every musician is playing in it. We got the choir singing in Latin. What a way to end the movie, close quote, which is amazing, you know? Once I realized they're singing Mission Impossible in Latin. <laughs> which, which, which I think which, which some people may regard as tasteless, but I, I regard it as absolutely beautiful. <laughs> your experience with Fallout, to me, kind of echoes your experience with Terminator Genesis. And what I mean by that is that I think there is brilliance in doing just something different that the previous Mission films had done, and you just embrace the theme. You're not precious with it because you understand that it's a direct channel into the emotional memory the audience has with the franchise. This is what the, the whole point of a theme is, is that emotional memory. There's no other reason to it. It's not meant to be there so that you can hum it. It is purely to remind the viewer of who that character is. It's not meant to over, overstate its welcome. It's meant to just help support the emotional narrative. And I never understand when people don't continue themes. Your, your audience are seeing that character. When I see Darth Vader, I want to hear Darth Vader's theme. That is my memory. It is my emotional journey. And as soon as I hear, hear it, I, can, I see it. And I think that some people want to create new themes for characters, which seems odd to me if it works, why change it? When you get given that opportunity of a theme, you get nervous because it is a, it, it is a holy grail. It's the same with on Bad Boys, having Mark Mancina's theme, which was a film that I, I loved when I was young. And, he, and being able to use it puts a grin on your face. You just smile and it's something that we've lived with. And I think it's crazy not to continue that journey. Allow me to talk for a moment about, you know, how the theme is, is disguised, not only the theme, but even other themes are, you know, present in Fallout. Quote, 
Love's Reduced was really the beginning of my relationship with Mission Impossible. It's the backbone of a lot of the film. We see a new side of Ethan as a character, and I felt we had to address that musically. So rather than write new themes, we return to the DNA of the original show, like the plot theme, the baddie, the baddie theme, which is something we discovered late in the process. It's the original three notes with the middle one taken out, close quote. Mm -hmm. So for anyone listening, Love's Reduced is a track that is repeated throughout the movie during the, the, the flashbacks, the opening, the flash forwards. And I, you know, I don't think melody is discussed enough when it comes to drawing parallels and creating musical symmetry between themes. So how do you think using these different themes allow you guys to create a musical landscape that felt organic within the movie yes well again that's one of the advantages of writing whilst the process is happening and i think that originally loves reduced was a far more complicated piece there was a theme on top of it and when chris heard it he was trying its picture and he'd give me requests and it'd say can we remove the theme can we make it more simplistic and that's that is why it's called reduced it was a far more fuller piece of music with a theme on top and i think that's what's great about filmmaking is that we can't be precious this is a collaborative process what you create has to work with picture um Oh, tell me the question again. Sorry, I got... No worries, no worries. Again, if you want, I can just reread you the last part of the quote because I thought that was very interesting, talking about the plot theme too. Quote, rather than write new themes, we return to the DNA of the themes of the in the original show, like the plot theme, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that the idea of connecting that to Walker came later in the, the musical discovery. It's also an interesting thing. You're trying to modernize what that musical point of view was. Because it's when we listen to music from 40 years ago from horror films, it's slightly a parody now. The music, whether it's intentional or not, becomes a slightly comedic because we're far more educated musically now with what the, A, the tricks are, but B, what that emotion is. So I think it's, it, it's taking that piece that is a classic, but you have to turn it around and make it more apparent to the process of filmmaking now. And I think that some people get opposed to having hybrid schools and they wish that it was sounding just like it did 50 years ago. But filmmaking has progressed. It's like saying, let's just keep watching movies in black and white. Film has progressed and so should music. And we use the orchestra because it creates different colors. And synths are their own orchestra. They create their own colors and timbres to the school. So I think it all kind of really does come to not being worried about rules and, and simply following the path that the film is wanting you to take. It would be a shame for us to not take this opportunity to talk about the magnificent role of bongos. Quote, there's something very 60s about bongos. They infuse the score with something tribal about it and create a musical identity of their own. It's like discovering your favorite candy bar and then you want to eat it all the time, close quote, which <laughs> is a great way of describing it. So you have 12 drummers playing bongos with hands, drumsticks, or bamboo sticks. I just wonder, on an emotional level for you, why and when did you think percussions was the right way into the score? It's going back to the origin. 
it going back to the TV show. The TV show was very percussive. I look at Fallout and what we created as as a total nod to the past, but just trying to reinvent it. Instead of doing a pastiche or a parody, because the movie isn't a parody, so we don't need to musically try to make it sound from that time. And I wanted to introduce the colours from that genre, but bring it to today. And the bongos was, I knew from the TV show, this was a musical vocabulary that I wanted to try. And again, it was one of these great experiments. The whole opening was written. And then one day I thought, um, after doing one of the, uh, the bongo sessions, I was watching the opening. And then because of in that recording studio and hearing these musicians working, it then gave me the idea to create that opening, which was introducing it with the bongos, which also was a nod to the first one, because the first Mission Impossible started off with percussion and snares. Yeah, and it, it, it's trying to embrace the past without it becoming parody, which I wanted to try to do. The only sequence that I could think of that kind of has a little bit of graphics is, is the opening, the mission briefing. And I know that was very difficult for you because that is a marriage between exposition and emotion. And I think the music also has to reflect that. Quote, the mission briefing was the hardest scene to score. Initially, it was very atmospheric, and I soon lost count of how many times I rewrote it. The track may not be the most interesting to listen on the album, but you've got to follow the dialogue and get to follow the story. Close quote. So the opening 10 minutes of a movie set the tone emotionally, you know, for what the musical language of, of, of the entire film is going to be like. So I know... Chris McQuarrie is doing the final voice. He's the one, you know, reading the mission briefing, but other people... Which I still don't understand. I think about that all the time, and I cannot... <laughs> I still can't believe it's him. Good evening, Mr. Hunt. The anarchist Solomon Lane. Since you captured him two years ago, his absence from the world stage has had unintended consequences. His syndicate of rogue covert operatives continues to wreak havoc around the globe. The CIA's Special Activities Division has relentlessly hunted Lane's elite network of hostiles, but many remain unknown and at large. The remnants of this extremist splinter cell refer to themselves as the Apostles. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to prevent the Apostles from acquiring plutonium using any means at your disposal. If you or any members of your IMF team are caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Good luck, Ethan. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. I can think of the graphics and, and McHugh's voice impacting the flavor of your music. So I was wondering, you know, I'll ask you about test screenings in general in a second, but, but what was the most surprising thing about auditioning those first 10 minutes and having to rework them? I think the mission briefing is still one of the hardest cues I've ever written. But where we ended up, I truly did write with Chris. It was a very difficult scene because you're get, being given a lot of information. You're wanting to have propulsion, but not distract. I've lost count how many times we, we wrote it, and it just, for some reason, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. And then finally, everything connected. It's the same as the opening. The opening we didn't really discover until very near the end. It was a far different piece of music. But again, you distance yourself. You watch the movie in a flow, and then you, you, you realize you're harming the narrative. You're slowing things down. 
and you need the help of the audience. Yeah, I don't think I've worked on a movie where I've thought of the audience and how they, they are feeling as much as on that film. Allow me to ask you about my favorite track on the album, which is The Exchange. About that one, you had this to say, quote, the 5-4 rhythm is so symbolic to Mission Impossible. Take the actual pattern of the original MI theme in 5-4 time and erase the notes and turn it into halftime. For the extraction sequence, Chris and Eddie edited picture to the music. After working on this film, I don't think I'll be able to write in 5-4 again. Close quote. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder- oh, Actually, I just, unfortunately, I just did yesterday or something. Aha, you, you got over the PTSD of 5-4. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it's my understanding that the track was shorter and they loved it so much, they kind of expanded it. How does tempo and rhythm, specifically with this, impact your creativity when it comes to designing melody? You know, the funny way I look at it is that that piece has, has existed for 60 years. It was always there. It just needed to be modernized. And it's funny when, when I get messages on Twitter saying, well, it sounds just like this and it sounds like, just like that. It's like, unfortunately, there's a pedigree <laughs> to where that's come from. And it was written well long before any of these modern movies or even before I was born. I'm a percussionist. I failed percussionist. I wasn't very good, but I, uh, I loved it. So I always think rhythms. Rhythms are what I always love. I, I enjoy rhythms more than melodies, ironically. So I, I think that piece of exchange, Lalo wrote that. It just needed to be brought into a, a modern day point of view. And polished. He was ahead of his time. But yes, but, but then it worked so far, the picture, and then, but then it had to get rewritten the end. It became too monotonous. But it, but it was a good starting block, really, for my relationship with Eddie, Chris and Tom, because I think that was the piece that, that, that and Love's Reduced were the pieces that they had experimented with. This was a big leap for me, this movie, and there was many other far more experienced composers that could have been doing this movie. My goodness, you look at, you look at the pedigree of, of Danny Elfman, Hans, Michael, Joe, you know, just great, amazing composers. So it's very intimidating. And Love's Reduced and Exchange, I think, were the, was the piece that helped me get the film. I'm gonna talk about Escape Through Paris, which is the track right after that. But I also wanna to talk to you about your relationship with your music editor. Quote, mm, oh yes. Action scenes are always the hardest to write. You gotta choose your hit points. You don't wanna be remarking with music while you're already seeing visually. This is where, as a composer, your best friend is the music editor. Music can sometimes enhance an action scenes, but other times compromise making it feel realistic. Close quote. So could you talk about Cecile, who's your music editor, and uh, how do you collaborate with her on a sequence-to-sequence on -sequence basis? Cecile is um, a force of nature. There's not enough positive adjectives that one can use to describe, A, her in a professional manner, but also in a personal manner. With, for us, 
she has a great relationship with Chris and Eddie and with me and is able to communicate in two different sets of dialogue. The way that you would speak to a composer is going to be different than you speak to a director. It's just, it's a different terminology. And she has this great ability to get into the mindset of the director and also the composer. And the reason, the reason I enjoy Fallout so much and watching it is because I am slightly more distant from it than most films because a lot of the, the music would originate from Chris and Eddie attempting it in certain scenes and also Cecile working with different uh, with the music and 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 trying it up to picture and and using it in a way that a composer wouldn't necessarily write the score to so she's an integral part of the soundtrack and an, an integral part of the team to what how we made that soundtrack and how and and also most of all, how we're going how we're going to make the next because she she to me created Fallout as uh, the soundtrack just as equally as I did. The final portion of the entire movie is the helicopter chase. Once more, quote, we had to keep building tension while cutting back and forth, maintaining the tempo between the end of a loud scene and the start of a quiet one. At the same time, we couldn't reveal too much musically as at the beginning of the helicopter chase, there's still a lot of story to go, close quote. I mean, it's so complex how you and Chris and Eddie are working together in regards to, you know, cutting between Luther and Julia, Ethan and the helicopter and Benji with Elsa. And each vignette seems to carry a different emotional energy. So what is the hardest element about finding the right balance between tempo and musical structure for this entire sequence? There, there is no formula. It's a never-ending experiment because you may think that you've cracked that nut and then you watch the film in a, in a go and out of context, it worked, but now it doesn't. So I don't personally believe there is a formula. You have to distance yourself and watch the bigger picture to see it's the same as editing. It's stepping back and, and watching the whole story lets you then become more aware if what you're doing is actually necessary and if it is actually helping the story. What you're touching on is interesting because it's my understanding that you were sitting down every Sunday during production to try and study pacing issues or figure out if there wasn't enough melody. And just this idea of through post, allowing yourself to have perspective, number one, but this idea that to me emotionally Lauren, what I think is unique about this franchise for you as a composer is that supposed to other movies you might, you know, have worked on that have a lot more CGI and you're receiving footage where it's, you know, a guy is running on a green screen following a tennis ball. Watching a movie where for the majority of things, the stunts, the action is 100% in camera must inspire you in ways that other projects may not. Oh, totally. You think about it constantly because you automatically can relate to the emotion of the actor which makes your life so much easier and it's 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 very much like working on animation films it's very difficult because what you're looking at doesn't exist it's black and white drawings so what you're missing is the emotion and the color 
look, the reason that we do this is because we love movies and we love storytelling. Working on Fallout and working with Tom and Chris, they think about the audience. A lot of filmmakers don't, but they think about the audience. Jerry Bruckheimer is the same as a filmmaker. He, he very much thinks of how the audience feel and what the audience want. It's not, a, it's not coming from a selfish point of view. It's coming from a collective point of view. So when you're able to work on a project that has not got wall-to-wall CGI, you relate to it and you emotionally connect in a far closer and easier way. Since we are talking about the audience, my last question about Fallout is this concept that you guys, from my understanding, have for test screenings, and you wrote every cue yourself as opposed to using temp music. And you know, for anyone listening, what happens many times is that you you edit a movie which is in progress, and then you borrow music from other films, and you pop it in for a second just for these private screenings. And number one, it's a massive amount of work on you to make sure that every two, three weeks, you're probably getting zero sleep. And allowing notes from one test screening to inform the next one. My final quote for today, quote, the screenings taught us a lot about pacing. It was hard to figure out where to place the mission theme and that evolved, close quote. So how did these final screenings subvert your expectations as filmmakers? And what did they teach you about yourself as a composer? Uh, ooh, what did they teach? I think what they teach you is that you must try harder. Sometimes it's interesting, test screening, especially with animation, they ask about the music, but that's mainly because of the use of songs. Normally in a test screening, when asked about the music, the audience gravitate to the songs and that's what they remember. So I think as a composer, you, what you gain from it is, is as a filmmaker. And, and that's the important thing because it's, it's the same as when you write a lot of action music. And when you watch it in the film, you realize maybe sometimes less is more. You've got to work with sound effects and you can't both win. So I think that the test screenings educate you more as a filmmaker and let you distance yourself and, uh, and remind yourself that this is, this is made for an audience. It's not made for a composer or fans of film music. It's made for a, a general audience. Lauren, thank you so, so much for joining us. It, it was amazing. I can't thank you enough for all of your time. And we wish you the very best with all of the upcoming projects, not only Mission, but also His Dark Materials. We're so excited for Emmy season and for season two coming up. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Wide Bear PR for setting this conversation up to Lorne for his contagious enthusiasm, and to Eric Boss for doing such a great job mixing all of these episodes. We seriously couldn't do it without him, so thank you, Eric. If you enjoyed this program, please help us by taking a moment to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow movie lovers and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.